the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elma. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is indeed Elna Schütz and this is the one hour of the week where we get a little bit nerdy on VowFM and we look at science around a news story and generally just for your life. As I said, my name is Elna Schütz and I'll be with you for the whole hour. And you might have seen in the headlines recently that Johannesburg Mayor Herman Mashaba is clamping down on hijacked buildings in the inner city. At first I thought that word hijacked buildings is quite funny, but it is of course a very serious thing. A hijacked building is in fact exactly what it sounds like. It's a space, a building, a property that's used by someone that doesn't own it and isn't willing to give it back without a fight. Sometimes these properties are seized and returned to the original owners, like happened quite recently with the 12 buildings in the inner city. So with other abandoned spaces, it may not be as clear who exactly has a right to these properties? It might have gotten lost just in in history exactly who this now belongs to. Nobody's entirely sure. Which is exactly why Mayor Mashaba has written to former Public Works Minister Natin Keko to ask for the city to take hold of these buildings. Say, give it to us, we'll use it for good. The city is hoping to use these spaces for new quality low-cost housing, student accommodation and affordable rental space for small businesses. All you know, really great things. And if you spend any significant time in the inner city, like right here in Bromfontein or over the bridge in Newtown, you know these buildings. I know you do. We all walk past them. We've gotten so used to them, we don't even really fully notice them as spaces anymore. There's that sign outside saying what it used to be, maybe a dentist or an optometrist. It's hanging there, but it has not been, you know, showing anything open for quite a while. Sometimes the windows are smashed. Maybe they've been boarded up. There is dust all over the place. And I quite like to see, to look inside and see the leftovers of what used to be a shop or an office. You can still see them there, literally abandoned. But these spaces are not as forgotten and as abandoned as you might think just walking past them every day. Today on the show, in our main story, after the news, of course, we will look at this through the lens of, can you believe it, science, urban design and spatial analysis. We'll find out about the lives that these buildings may hide behind their forgotten facades and how there are dangers for both the people and the structure involved. Then late in the show, as always, we have the little bit of the show where it gets a little bit ridiculous. It's unscience and this time we talk about squids and camouflage. So if you were that kid that always wished that they could be invisible. I know I was a kid. If I had a superpower, I always said I want to be invisible. This is this is this one is for you because on Unscience today, we're getting a lot closer to that dream of being invisible. And then later on, we always end off the show by speaking to a scientist and really looking at the person behind the science. And then after that, it is something special. It is the month of the month rather of March, and if you remember from last year on the science side, it is a very special month month 
oh, why is that word so hard today? It is a very special month for us here in Nerdland at the Science Inside. We will be looking at this year's March Mammal Madness. If you don't know what it is, stay tuned because it's the nerdiest game out there, even more nerdy than Dungeons and Dragons. Can you believe it? So I am Alna Schutz. This is the Science Inside, and you can find us on social media to chat to us about any of those things on the show today. It's the Science Inside on Facebook. Our WhatsApp line: zero eight four zero seven eight four nine one two zero eight four zero seven eight four nine one two or on the Twitter sphere, as always, at VALFM, hashtag Science Inside. It's very easy to find us. And we are going to kick off the show as we do every single week with some news from the world of science. This week's Science Headline. And as per normal, I have my producer, Bridget Lepere, with me. Hi, Bridget. Hi, Elna. How are you? Very well. I love this one hour a week because we get to talk about science, one of my favorite things. What do you have for us in the news today? Well, this week um, in the news, we are speaking about the Lassa fever. Have you heard about it, Elna? It sounds scary, just the name. Mm -hmm. It does. Well, the lack of diagnostic devices hampers efforts in combating lesser fever. Nigeria has been gripped by an outbreak of a fatal disease known as Lassa fever since the beginning of this year. About 1,100 suspected cases have been reported and 90 deaths have been filed. Just this year alone? Just We're only in March? Yeah. Wow. That's scary. And even though the first case of Lassa fever was first identified in the Nigerian town of Lassa, well, where the disease <laughs> <Makes> <laughs> was sense. found yeah. in 1969, after an outbreak in a mission hospital, since then, science has still not been able to develop a vaccine as it is very difficult to treat and to diagnose. Okay. So the dis- disease has been witnessed in many West African uh, countries, including Ghana, Ghana Mali, and Sierra Leone, and is one of and is one of a number of illnesses which can give rise to a dangerous epidemic, given its matchless and rapid speeding effect. So what are the symptoms of this disease? It sounds quite scary. It is. While most people have been exposed to the disease, have only reported mild symptoms such as fever, headaches and general weakness and sadly for some people no symptoms at all. The disease can be also called viral hemorrhagic fever which is essentially a group of uh, four uh, families of viruses uh, and these include Ebola, Marburg, Lassa fever and the yellow fever viruses and these are all known to have similar features which affect uh, mostly the vital organs in your body. Okay, that really puts it into context because some of the ones that you mentioned like Ebola and uh, yellow fever we are quite familiar with and we take very seriously. Mm -hmm. So that automatically makes me take lesser fever very seriously. Also, one big thing uh, that obviously determines a lot in terms of these diseases is how is it spread? 
Yeah, well, listen to this. It sounds like, you know, some of these other, you know, viruses and diseases that we've been coming across lately. Well, loss of fever is spread through urine and droppings of rodents. And because they are a commonplace um, in the West African countries, I mean, you don't even need to look further than, you know, Alexandra, you know, um, in South Africa. It is very difficult to contain because of the rampant, uh, you know, spread of, 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 of these animals and most people catch Lassa fever from anything contaminated with the rat urine, the feces the blood or saliva and through eating or drinking or simply even handling contaminated objects in the home and those people who are living in the affected areas have been taken to take uh, basic precautionary measures when um, you know dealing with the, the, the disease so um, in terms of blocking any openings where rats may enter into their homes covering dustbins after disposing um uh, rubbish, uh, wearing protective gloves uh, when caring for anybody who has um, or who is suspected to have Lassa fever or when handling uh, people who have recently just died from the fever and also when you're handling food or water so you need to just be careful washing your hands which is very important but despite these measures the uphill battle against Lassa fever continues to be a nightmarish exercise as with most infectious diseases because of the lack of effective medical tools like med- uh, diagnostic tests and treatments it's not very easy to deal with mm, that makes sense and of course a lot of these areas like some of the things that you were mentioning like washing your hands like not having rats be in the house it's easy to say but a lot of areas and especially people who are poorer and maybe aren't able to live in you know a solid brick house that's that's not as easily done as said you know those kind of precautionary measures because firstly there needs to be information there needs to be money for soap all of these basic things yeah which seem very basic but not to some yes definitely and here's here's the big question that i have we know that with other things like ebola there have been many fatalities and like you said this is this has spread very quickly what makes it so fatal well, it can cause damage to blood vessels like Ebola. It causes bleeding through the mouth, the mouth, the nose, and other parts of the body. Uh, it is said that women who contract this disease late in pregnancy face up to 80% chance of losing the child or dying themselves. Sure. Yeah, and in the early stages of the disease, it is almost impossible to, to distinguish it from any other common um diseases like malaria and normally Lhasa has a fatality rate of about 1% but in Nigeria's case this time the rates were among uh, 20% uh, of of the people who have been confirmed dead or you know probable cases where they suspect that um, they, the fever might, might be. So according to the countries, this is according to the country's Center for Disease Control mm. Sure that is very high 20%, 1 in 5 patients and surely this isn't just the things that you mentioned surely there are other factors that are influencing why these numbers might be this high yes so it's because you know uh, um, officials are unsure they're unsure how um, 
how um, the the weather conditions also affect um, the spread or the you know the the potency of of the disease, and this also affects the viral load um, of 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 the the virus in in the rats because oh, right. yeah, with the high um, weather conditions, as you know, Nigeria is, a, is an African country, so it's um, country prone to heat as well. So um, and it is um, a particularly a cause of concern as the rampant spread of the disease is usually high uh, this time of the year. And another factor also influencing the slow response to the disease is the lack of diagnostic apparatus. And the only way to confirm a proper diagnosis is to analyze a blood or tissue sample in uh, one or of a small number of specialized laboratories. Bridget, one of the other big factors with these diseases is how long does it take uh, for the disease to present itself and then how long does it stay? Well, usually for up to like three weeks, that's what um, they are saying. And researchers are also trying to work out whether like Ebola, Lhasa can stay in in the blood and can be passed on through sexual encounters or contact and through, um, you know, other... um, other uh, things like you know saliva or things like that so it's not a disease they know much of even though it's been around just like you know listeria listeria Mm. Um, yeah that makes sense but this isn't the first epidemic we've seen in Nigeria and the country does have quite a strong public health system Mm -hmm. it's not the first one they've had to deal with unfortunately why is this one seeming to me to be such a difficult disease to control Well, it is said that uh, vaccine development is lengthy, it's complex, and it's a very costly process, especially with emerging epidemic diseases where a sample vaccine can only be tested where there is an outbreak. And because of the volatility of uh, the disease, um, where there's also been like about 14 health workers who have also died in like six different um, states in the country so that's what makes it such um, a danger Uh, and the World Health Organization who uh, together with the Nigerian authorities are working on coordinating responses in fighting the spread of the of the disease and also an organization called Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations Um, with the financial support from the government and other organizations, hopes to accelerate vaccine production. That's always the big one, isn't it? The Mm -hmm. vaccine. And once you can get there, the tide really changes of a disease. So, Bridget, thank you so much for telling us about the Lassa fever. I hope that my story brings a little bit of hope into the situation because even though it's a very different disease, I do have some pretty good news about a very a very big killer when it comes to diseases, not just in South Africa, but in the world. So my new story comes from right here at WITS. Very proud of this one. comes from Professor Bavesh Khanna, who is the head of the Center of Excellence in Biomedical TB Research. And he worked on this together with international researchers, which is pretty cool. 
I'm glad to hear this about TB because South Africa is one of those countries in the world with the highest burden of tuberculosis and so we need such breakthroughs. Absolutely. Anything we can do in this area. And it is TB Awareness Month this March and um, it actually isn't just a big deal here. It is still the leading cause of death worldwide from an infectious bacterial disease and the world health organization estimated that in 2015 that we our country specifically has almost half a million cases of active tb so it's quite a big deal Hmm. to to you know put it mildly Okay, so what have the Viz researchers found? Yeah, give me some hope (laughs) after all this terrible news. Well, they have innovated how TB is detected, which is obviously a very important part of the process to having the disease treated. And what the team has done is add a molecule. This is so cool. They've added a molecule to the bacteria's own protective layer. And this molecule illuminates under fluorescent light. So it's like an invisible ink. I don't know if you ever played with those as a kid. I definitely remember those inks that under certain lights, you know, go purple or whatever. It's like Mm -hmm. that, but for TB. Wow. And so they've developed this stain that will light up only if it's inside living TB bacteria. And this makes the whole process much, much quicker than other processes. Because TB bacteria has traditionally been found in three ways. One is staining the saliva and viewing it under a microscope. Mm-hmm. Another one is growing the bacteria in the laboratory, which takes which takes up to 42 days, so over a month. It's obviously a problem. And then the detection of the DNA of TB bacteria using a very expensive and exclusive machine. So this new innovation is part of that smear micro- microscopy that I was talking about, looking at it under a microscope, but it's much, much easier to perform. Cool stuff. Can you tell me more? So you need to understand that TB bacteria is shaped like little rods and they have this protective exterior layer to, to obviously protect them, similar, similar to a capsule like a tablet that protects the powder inside. Mm-hmm. And one of these layers is my mycolic acid. And it's made with a molecule called trehalose. I hope I'm pronouncing all of those fancy chemistry words correctly. Please forgive me if there are any chemists listening. So TB bacteria uses this, uh, this trehalose to build their own walls of defense and thereby protect themselves from what your body's immunity is throwing at it, trying to overcome it, because obviously your body is fighting the TB. And quite importantly, this chemical molecule is unique to the family of organisms that contain TB bacteria. So what the scientists did is they fused the trellos with this new molecule called the DMN molecule that they came up with. They fed the bacteria then to your saliva and... um, Rather, they fed the molecule to your saliva where the TB bacteria is sitting. The TB bacteria eats up this molecule, takes it up, uses it to build it into its cell walls. And now when the DMN molecule responds to light, so does your TB molecule. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, it is quite a lot to take in, but it's like, you know, those funny inks we used to play with as kids and even the newly produced you know lipsticks on the market that turn 
into another color when you put it on. Exactly like that, but even more cool because you are actually saving lives. Hmm. Wow, this is great. Thankfully, it will make the whole process much quicker and more accurate in terms of diagnosing people and thereby treating them better. But there is also something else that's very, very important here. This method can monitor a patient's response to treatment. So normally, when a patient is infected with 100 TB bacteria, for example, you could expect that as they're getting better, this number goes down and down and down, right? Yes. But other methods don't show this this like gradual reduction because they can't tell the difference, other methods can't tell the difference between living and dead bacteria. Oh, but you said this new method only works in TB bacteria. That's alive, okay. yes. So this new method only works in a live TB bacteria, not dead, dead. TB hmm. bacteria. Meaning, not only are you seeing that the bacteria is there, you can count it to to a certain degree. Um, and that means that you can see how people are responding, which is pretty cool. Wow, awesome. This is great knowing that Vitz is working on something so cool. Definitely. It's yeah. it's. One one of these really big issues in South Africa, TB, and it's something that we really need more solutions to. So I'm very excited about this. The actual molecule was created at Stanford University in the US, but they came here to test it on TB patients in Soweto. So that's how we were involved. Wow, that's really awesome. Before we end off the news, uh, just one last thing for you guys listening out there. I know that today, especially in the headlines, there was a lot of talk around listeriosis and that they have found the cause, the actual place where this listeriosis or listeria outbreak came from. I know you've seen it in the headlines, but if you want to understand a little bit more about the science, I really encourage you to go to an old The Science Inside show where we talked all about this to one of the leading food safety experts in the country. You can go there and find out a little bit more about it. I think it was about two or three weeks ago. It's on journalism.coza forward slash science for you there. That was our science news. But next up, hijacked buildings, abandoned spaces and empty high rises. We find out whether Joburg's so-called Bad buildings are really that bad. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome to The Science Inside. My name is Elna Schutz. Remember, you can find us on social media as The Science Inside on Facebook and VowFM, hashtag Science Inside on Twitter. Now, you might have seen that in the headlines recently, Johannesburg Mayor Herman Mashaba is taking decisive action on derelict and hijacked buildings in the city centre. It sounds like such a good thing to do, doesn't it, to use empty buildings for education and accommodation and small businesses. But as with many things, this issue is anything but simple. Margot Rubin is a senior researcher at the South African Research Chair in Spatial Analysis and City Planning right here at Wits University. I went to speak to her because she's done quite a bit of research on these kinds of spaces and had access to places that many people probably haven't because these spaces often seem almost forgotten or not taken seriously. They're called abandoned, hijacked or even bad buildings. But Margot says that most of the time, these words aren't quite accurate. 
the question is always about who, abandoned by whom, bad for whom. You know, these are these are the difficult questions. So, I mean, I think the idea of abandoned means abandoned by the official registered owner. I mean, often means abandoned by the state in another kind of sense. But the vast majority of the buildings, particularly in the inner city, are occupied. And they're occupied by a whole host of different kinds of people. So in some cases, there are buildings which had residents in them and then the owners left or abandoned them or moved away. And so they were taken over by residents and residents committees who, who started to run the buildings. In other cases, you had situations where the owners or the landlords were forced out and they were actually hijacked by groups of people. You have situations where buildings were emptied, people were evicted, or functions went elsewhere. So a whole bunch of the commercial buildings, for example, where the banks and the financial institutions moved to Santon in the late 80s, early kind of 90s, and the buildings were left empty, and people moved in and they, they occupied the buildings. And then they might have been hijacked or they may be resident-run, in that there are a whole heap of different kind of formulations about how we understand what these buildings are, who runs them, how they manage, who controls them. And the idea of them being bad buildings, it's very difficult. Um, you know, bad in what sense? Bad in the sense of do they not pay their rates, taxes and services? Probably not. In fact, I would argue definitely not for, for a majority of them. But there are reasons for that. Very poor people can't afford them. Often metering is inaccurate and it's difficult to um, assign costs to households or to individuals, so people don't pay. So in many cases the buildings get cut off and as a consequence they find illegal ways of accessing water, accessing electricity. Margot says that in the late 80s and early 90s there was very little control over the inner city and many buildings were abandoned by businesses for the greener pastures of Santon and Rosebank and other hubs with the idea that these companies would probably come back to their buildings after a few years but it never really happened. So while these spaces are technically abandoned on paper, the reality is that they get used in usually quite the opposite way and it might just surprise you. One of the things that's interesting about um, places like the inner city is that they're used for all kinds of different things. So there's a huge amount of residential use uh, and that's probably the biggest use that we've seen. And there's for very low income earners who need often a very small space or can access a very small space and a shared space for rental. So what we're seeing in, in a lot of these buildings is an old flat or an old office block that's been informally subdivided. And the partitions can be anything from a bookcase to sheets to people actually putting in drywalling to all kinds of different things. And subdividing these spaces into um, these rooms into smaller and smaller spaces. And then people rent them out. And you can then rent literally a space on the floor. You can rent a bed. You can rent a room, you can rent half of a room, whatever the case may be. And if you work it out per square meter, the rental's actually very high, but because it's so small, it allows people to access some kind of accommodation. So one of the primary uses is these shared living spaces, these shared residential spaces, and they're very controlled. You've got a Mustande, you've got somebody who manages the space, who looks after it, who collects rent, so on. But you've also got a whole heap of other things that go on. And they can happen in parallel, they can happen uh, sequentially. So you've got, for example, rooms and spaces which are then used for home-based enterprises, cooking, 
creches, um, churches, coffee shops. I mean, of course, there are all kinds of nefarious purposes that happen as well. There are the brothels, there are um, drug dealing, there are criminality. These these things happen as well. It's not all, you know, kind of unicorns and rainbows. Um, But a lot of the spaces are just used for daily life. Um, And what's interesting is then how they use. So, I mean, one of the things that we've been doing is work on the basements of a lot of these buildings and the old parking lots and whatever else. But they get repurposed and rejigged so that they are suddenly become spaces where you've got um, places where you can keep live chickens or you can make pap or you can have an aftercare or you can have people who are doing welding or you can have um, upholsterers and then that shuts down at 7, 8 o'clock at night and the next load of people come in and the basements become sleeping spaces and people sleep in them and then next thing is you know, on the weekend, Saturdays, everybody shuts down, the places get cleaned, Sundays they become churches. So, I mean, what we're talking about is an environment which is extremely vibrant. It's, it's got a number of different activities going on all the time. Um, it's very unregulated. And that's what allows these things to happen. But it's also problematic. While these spaces are fascinating in terms of how they are used, this is not just a social or political issue, but one of architecture and design, especially given that many of these spaces have been cut off from municipal services. So there are often all kinds of threats both to the humans and the building. Part of the problem of what goes on is that as soon as the city cuts off services to these buildings, they become dangerous environments for the people living there okay, in a whole heap of different ways. If you've got no access to water, you have you become immediately vulnerable to a whole heap of different kinds of waterborne diseases because of where you can get your water, because of how you can store it, having no sanitation, having no running water. And here, of course, we're talking about buildings that are quite high. So what, what do you do with your waste? How do you get rid of it? So in some cases, it gets loaded into the basement and everybody pours their waste into the basements. These then build up, and as a consequence of um, all of the the kind of feces and the uric acid, it actually attacks the, ba- the the foundations of the building and eats away at the cement. Okay, and eats away at the actual foundations, and these buildings become structurally unsound. So that happens on the one side. You've got situations where, of course, people use them all kinds of power in order to cook, to read by, to live by. So there you've got paraffin, you've got um, illegal um, electricity connections, and those are huge threat of fire. Okay. You've got um, overcrowding in some cases, which of course has issues around communicable diseases. You've got lack of security, so um, people not being able to close doors, to lock doors properly against outside threats. So, you know, you've got a whole range of different kinds of issues that come up as a consequence of lack of services. So there are these different threats to you as a resident and user of that space, especially considering that these buildings have very high density and are spread out vertically, not horizontally like a typical informal settlement. This means that what is needed for a fire, like fire escapes and enough water, is often not in place anymore. And there have been trends, quite shockingly, of emergency services not wanting to come to some of these buildings. But beyond that, the one that really shocked me about what she was saying is that the content of your toilet bowl has the power to make a building's foundations unstable. 
that's a little bit scary. And this is happening. And Margot says it's not clear what can be done about it. Demolition is expensive. Um, how do you decant people? Where do you put them? Um, you can't just remove people in safety, health and safety grounds. They have to go somewhere. So the big question marks around what you would do with these buildings and how you would deal with it. I don't know the answers. And I don't think they've really been thought through. So, as she said, it's not clear what's supposed to happen. Margot told me that it isn't a question of coming up with an excellent strategy because several strategies have already been come up with, including the one that Mayor Mashaba is now supporting. But as is often the case, it's a problem around implementation and putting the right money and the right people behind it to take it seriously and really move it forward. It's a very tricky one and all kinds of different things from fire to sanitation are really threatening not just the building itself but the people who live there. I thought it was a really fascinating look at hijacked buildings and not just seeing it as another number on a press release from the mayor, but really, but really trying to understand these spaces a little bit better. Stay listening to the Science Inside because next up we go to Unscience. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome back to the show. And science is the five minutes of the show where it gets a little bit silly when we look at the weird and wonderful side of research. Let's jump right into it. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. I have producer Bridget Lepere back in studio with me. And Bridget, I want to tell you that squid skin could be the solution to camouflage. What? So I was saying earlier in the show that when I was a kid, I wished that I could be invisible and walk in and out of rooms without anybody knowing. And finally, I am being vindicated because it is possible now. Thanks to those little creatures under the sea. How would you react if I told you that scientists are looking into using squid skin to help humans blend into their environment? I'd say that is pretty awesome, like a Harry Potter kind of thing. Yeah, like the invisibility <laughs> cloak. Yeah. Very, very true. So um, a researcher at Northeastern University um, is an assistant professor of chemistry and chemical biology, Leila de Ravi. She has come a step closer to recreating this camouflage effect by simply looking at masked illusionists and experts in camouflage, not chameleons, actually squids and octopuses. Interesting. So why are we looking at this research? To to make our childhood dreams come true, Bridget. <laughs> no, thank <laughs> not that. They are working on this for some people that really would like to be invisible even more than I would like to be invisible. It's the US Army. They've teamed up to find out how these little creatures are such masters in color manipulation and how this could be used to the advantage of the army. So the way they did this is by turning the octopus pigments, pigment particles into spools of fiber so that they may be used for various things. I can, I can imagine how um, this can be used for a number of, of things, especially in the army. It would suit you well if you want to sneak into your enemy's territory and just pounce on them, you know. 
yeah, you could cover all kinds of things with this. With your this vehicle, fabric. yourself, yeah. <laughs> basically everything. Yeah, so you are very much on the right track there because they are looking at weaving the fibers together to create fabric for clothing or other art forms, particularly wearable items such as flexible screens and text, textiles that are capable of adapting to lots of different environments. So the research points out that this could enable the army with new capabilities for soldiers. I can imagine how this is going to take a lot of research to accomplish all of this. And uh, squids are doing this naturally already. So what makes their skin so special? So this type of animal is called a cephalopod. That includes octopuses, squid, and cuttlefish. And yes, the correct word is octopuses, not octopi. I know everybody's thinking that. And these animals are able to camouflage themselves to match their surroundings in a matter of seconds. And this wonder has been fascinating scientists for quite a while, especially in terms of how can they be as cool as squid. Please tell me more. <laughs> you also want to be that cool <laughs> and camouflage. The researchers discovered that these granules on the skin that were on the surface of the bodies of the cephalopods have the most incredible optical qualities. They are called chromatophores and appear over a period of time up and down. So it's almost similar to freckles on human skin, but it comes in shades of red, yellow, brown, and orange, and just, you know, thousands of them. So it is said that the rapid opening and closing of these freckles is what makes it possible for the skin color to keep changing of these animals. So below these chromatophores is a layer called the iridophores, which reenact a mirror effect. And together, these two things reflect all colors of visible light. And if these properties were to be incorporated into textiles and flexible displays, as you could imagine, they could bring quite new and exciting possibilities. Mm, those are a lot of fours there. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so what do they do to replicate this? So they removed individual pigment particles from the squid and the researchers were able to explore just all of the capabilities of this static material. One particle is only 500 nanometers in size, which in comparison to a human hair is 150 times smaller. So it's very, very tiny. The researchers layered these out and reorganized the particles and discovered that they could produce a really expansive color palette that way. They also discovered that the pigments can scatter both visible and infrared light. And this enhances brightness and light absorption affecting finally how your color is perceived that you've created awesome yeah. awesome <laughs> it is quite exciting and when the researchers engineered the system uh, which includes a mirror it's mimicking mimicking the layout of organs that squids have naturally so the researcher was actually able to further enhance the perceived color by scattering light through and off the granules quite cool they've actually done this they have this thread they just haven't made clothes out of it yet i think the only question that comes up for me being an animal lover is what about the squid though <laughs> yeah <laughs> don't you have to like you know do something drastic to the squid for you to achieve all of that yes so the mm. animal cruelty side for me is unanswered but i understand that most research has to go through a lot of um you know ethical barriers so let's hope that they were taking things from the squid that it can regenerate mm -hmm. um, and i think with something like camouflage like being invisible so to say 
we'd also have to just see the ethics of that in warfare. So there are lots of questions here, but I'm just happy that one day I'll get my invisibility cloak, finally. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks to a squid. It's unusual. It's unlikely. It's unscience. This time, our music was by zapsplat.com. And next up, behind great science, you know there are actual humans, and we want to know how they tick. Next up, we chat to Professor Colleen Downs from UKZN. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Alna Schutz and now we get into the part of the show where we like to look at the scientists behind the science. Today we speak to Professor Colleen Downs, who is, who is a biologist and focuses on terrestrial vertebrate. That's animals, but it's simply that mostly live on land and have a spine like you and me. Downs is the South African Research Chair's Initiative, Chair in Ecosystem Health and Biodiversity at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, UKZN, and she's on the Peter Maritzburg campus. She's also a professor of zoology in the School of Life Sciences at UKZN. Her field of interest is in understanding how ecosystems can be healthy and how the use of land by humans affects the animals living on it. Her research has played quite an important role in conservation efforts in South Africa and we're so happy to have the chance to speak to you. Professor Downs, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. So can you tell us just how big of a role the use or misuse of land plays in an ecosystem? I think we just have to start with it. us humans, there are more and more of us, and so we're the ones who are changing the land use. And so my students and I work from areas where it's still natural, like in protected areas, and then across a gradient, so rural farmland to cities, and cities are probably the one where us humans have changed the most. Um, we, especially if we have high density of housing or buildings, we don't leave much space for wildlife then. Mm, it's definitely encroaching on all of the space that animals would normally have. One yeah, but it, despite that, some animals um, manage to survive and some do very well. So we call those urban exploiters. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, so a good example are the hardy dyes that wake people up in the morning. <laughs> um, in the 1950s here in Natal, their numbers were very, very low. And now they're very common. So, yeah. So what are ways that we can actually incorporate more green concepts and make more space for animals that are perhaps not as adaptive as Hadi does? Um, well, I think that's where, especially people who are developing, making new housing estates can have a, an important role that they leave green areas. And so the city of Durban is one area where we're working and they have quite a few of forest areas that have remained in the city, partly because they 
often on steep slopes where no one could build. And then the city developed what they call the DMOS system. But basically, it's trying to link all the green areas. So in terms of their development, they don't allow new development in the corridors and so allow wildlife to move between the patches. It's no use just protecting a patch and not allowing movement, especially some of the small antelope and things that can't get between patches, whereas birds are much more fortunate, you know, they can fly between patches. Um, lizards are another one that's affected if they aren't corridors. Mm. A lot of your research has focused, um, as we've already mentioned, on how humanity impacts the lives of animals. And you've been quite strong on your stance of us needing to be more aware of our actions and that we can really save the lives of animals. What brought you to this place um, of having this particular stance and, and research focus? Oh, I've been <laughs> a biologist for a very long time, but way back um, in the 80s, I was going to go and study medicine, and a family friend said, no, um, the environment's going to be much more important. And so to them, I'm very grateful, because, um, yeah, it has become more and more important as humans have realized what impact we're having on the environment hopefully not too late. Mm. Um, yeah. So a lot of my earlier work was looking not so much ecology, but more physiology and behavior, how animals live where they do. But I couldn't really get students interested in physiology so much. <laughs> so slowly I did more and more ecology. And um, also with funding cuts, sometimes it was easier to do work around campus. And that's really how we started doing some of the urban work and realizing that there was stuff right on our doorstep that was very, very interesting and that these animals were managing to survive despite the odds. Um, yeah. And that brings me back to you asked what else we could do as humans to help. I think a very small thing is for us to plant indigenous and vegetation in our gardens, even if we're in a little townhouse or something. Because um, the trees fruit at different times of the year, and then that way we provide, especially the bird species, food throughout the year. So in Joburg, where you are, I think some of your suburbs are almost like um, modern-day forests because of the greenery and the Trees not only provide food, they also provide nesting sites, etc. So, mm, and Joburg is the biggest urban forest, uh, as far as I can remember. If I have my yeah, people there. have termed it that. Mm. Yeah. You speak of uh, you know focusing on the things that are right on our doorstep, and one thing that, so to say, figuratively is on your step 
is your doorstep is the Cape Parrot. You helped one of your big achievements there was was working in reclassifying this Cape Parrot as a distinct species in an effort to help in endangered species. Can you tell us a little bit how does that work? How do you reclassify a species um, and how does it help them? Well, actually, originally, the whole group was called Cape Parrot. And so with colleagues and students, we've done genetic work to show that actually the one that's found here in South Africa is separate to one that you get just coming into Kruger, the grey-headed parrot. So it's not only the genetics that's different, but also the lifestyle, the one that we work on is more forest species and um, so it was called the cat parrot because the time when it was described the whole of South Africa was known as a cape. So people often can't understand why they don't go much further than the hogs back but historically they occurred in forest along the escarpment up through Natal um, to Limpopo but there's now only a relic population in Limpopo. And, um, yeah, so we've been doing this work um, since 1992. And so it's quite different to our other work that I mentioned earlier on with urban stuff because the cat parrots mainly are found in our indigenous forests and especially the inland ones. Um, historically, they would fly down to the coast um, at Christmas time or in the summer when there wasn't much food available in the inland forest. Mm-hmm. That's mainly documented only around Antarctica now. Um, yeah, so I haven't done the work on my own. <laughs> There's been many people involved. Definitely. But what we do, do is once a year do a big count where we get people to go out to the different forests because they're highly mobile species and we call them food nomadics because they are moved between patches to find food. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can go to a forest one day and see them, but you go there the next day and they're not there. And then also they're very active at sunrise till about nine and then they'll often sleep through the middle of the day, only being active late afternoon. So... Um, by getting people out to forests and monitoring, um, we managed to work out that there are about 1,600 left in the wild. And so we try to highlight that this is South Africa's only endemic parrot. And for many South Africans, I think parrots only occur in Australia or South America. But they are, in fact, yeah. yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's quite yeah. funny to hear that your research has to work on, on their schedule, so, so to say. <laughs> Professor Downs, just yeah. a last question that we love to ask our guests shortly. What is the one thing that you would love our listeners out there that are not experts in your field to know about your research field? I think the big thing is that most people can start watching what's in their garden and learn what's around their garden. And there are quite a few apps now. Um, one of them is Bird Lasser, where people can actually record um, what they're seeing 
um, in their gardens. And all of that citizen science makes a huge contribution for us to understand what's happening um, as populations change and especially with climate change, which species are negatively affected and which are positively affected, etc. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think a lot of people think, oh, I don't know my birds, but it's like anything, once you start and you practice, eventually you become an expert. And so a lot of laymen are really excellent bird watchers um, probably know their birds better than me so yeah to encourage people another thing is to maybe join um, a bird club or um, there's a whole range of clubs that fall different species or con- part of conservancy a lot of areas have conservancies now um, so that's another way Professor Downs Thank you so much for giving us just that insight specifically on how ecology really is on our doorstep. That was Professor Colleen Downs from UKZN just looking at uh, the scientists behind the science. Thank you for joining us. Listen to the Science Insight podcast on www.journalism.co.za. Welcome back to the Science Inside. We are just finishing off the show with something quite exciting that has been creating a buzz around the office. If you were with us last year, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So every single night, uh, Monday night on Valve M, what follows us is the wonderful crew of the Sports Hub. Anthony and Mike are with me right now. Hi, guys. Yes. Hello. We are here. Can you tell us why is March so exciting for us? Because March Mammal Madness, that's why. Can you believe I have gotten sports guys interested in science? I should get a medal just for this. Yes, you should get Employee of the Month if I did (laughs) stuff like that. (laughs) So let me tell you a little bit, listeners, about how this works because you can actually play with us the VARFM team, and I hope you'll play on, on my side, on the science and side side, but technically you could support the guys. I mean, I think you want to support the winners, and that's obviously the sports hub. Oh, <laughs> you know, <sighs> trash talk on this show is a problem <laughs> when, it comes, when it comes to animals <laughs> fighting. Let me just give you the basics quickly, and maybe the guys have forgotten you know, from last year. So let's just catch everybody up. It's a definite possibility, yes. (laughs) So March Mammal Madness is kind of like a fantasy football league, but with animals fighting. That's, I think that's all we need to say. That's pretty much... That pretty much sums it up. (laughs) (laughs) So um, it is a game that's played all over the world by teachers, by their students, just by people on Twitter. And you can play along too. You can find the bracket. We'll also hopefully put it up on Twitter. The way it works is you fill in who you think is going to win. And it's all these different animals fighting against each other. Obviously, it's fantasy. There are no actual animals fighting against each other. Let's hope. Obviously not. Yeah. We wouldn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to pick in each little uh, match who's going to win. So, for instance, the main rat or the platypus? Who do you think? Uh, I think I, w- I filled this out already, so I think I went with uh, platypus. Ah, overachiever. Yeah, yeah. I like I like platypuses too. I'm also going to go for the platypus. Yeah, thing. pretty mean beak. 
The yeah. only reason I went for it is because of Perry the platypus. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I think I've done this really badly because I've just based all my choices off of the names that sound the coolest. I think it's the smartest plan. But that's what I did last year and I got yeah. knocked out in like the third round. But also, you've chosen someone that's very dear to me. What is that? Taz. Yes, I actually forgot that I picked him as my winner. So Mike won the, the Tasmanian <laughs> Devil. Yes, to win. I think you're just picking the like the fuzzy ones, Mike. No, I'm picking the ones. So from the first group, I think I went with something called the Jugulator, Ooh. which just sounds menacing. Doesn't even matter what that is. No, we it like could it. be like a man-eating ant that you could just stand on. But I went with it. Um, and then the other one was the cookie cutter shark because just cookie cutter is amazing to have as a description for a shark. I love that one also, but I'm a little bit concerned. So for the listeners out there, these uh, fantasy matches happen in different environments. So what is if this happens in the middle of the desert? Will the fish just whoop, die? Yeah, I didn't think that far. <laughs> <laughs> so, for everybody at home, if you want to trash talk like the science inside, like true nerds can, join us by finding the bracket, by filling it out. It's called March Mammal Madness. It goes by the hashtag 2018MMM. And you fill it out. You guess, are you on side Tasmanian Devil with Mike? Or do you maybe... Do you maybe think, you know, uh, the cookie cutter shark is going to win? Choose who you, th you think is going to be the winner. They play along with us each week where we chat about it on the show. And if you win, hey, you might just beat us all. And and then, yeah, I don't know, maybe we should automatically put you on the radio just based on that. I mean, to be fair, Matt is taking part in this again. This is true. It's a sore spot for us all. Yeah. Matthew, who won last year, is heading up a Vow FM general staff team yeah. to play against us. So we, we all... Want but him to lose. I think the description there is general staff. They have no expertise, so I think we're okay. <laughs> Thankfully, we are trash-talking somebody who's not here. Um, otherwise, this could get physical and not just between, uh, you know, fantasy league matches. <laughs> It's really just for fun. It's really just for us to understand some more about science and to just play along with something internationally that makes science a lot of fun. And that's exactly what we do here on The Science Inside. I hope you tune in again next week. This has been a great show and thank you. A big thank you goes to all of our guests featured on the show, including Margot Rubin and Colleen Downs. Our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget LePere and take by Kutlana Sahame. The podcast, if you've missed anything today on the show, don't you worry. It's on journalism.coza forward slash science and social media. Well, you, you can find us there, of course. It's The Science Inside on Facebook and tweet us at VARFM. My name is Alna Schutz. The Science Inside is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. Join us again next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on VARFM 88.1.
Listen to the Science Insight podcast on www.journalism.co.za.